0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome back to FEPS Talks. Uh, Today we have an extremely special treat, uh, which connects with what's hot in contemporary politics. And I think that uh, when many people think about excellence in leadership, about hope, Um, About brightness in giving a vision forward, our eyes are going on to the spotlight where Jacinda Ardern, the leader of the Labour Party in New Zealand, is currently standing with a slogan. Let's keep moving on. Uh, for that context and for this special conversation, we've invited Grant Duncan, who's an Associate Professor in Politics at Massey University Albany Campus in Oakland, who is connecting with us today on the day with time difference, with 12 hours difference, to talk to us about Labour Party in New Zealand. Welcome to the Fab Talks.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I think that, you know, uh, we have all rediscovered New Zealand, if you allow me this awful sentence, uh, because of the talent and charisma of Jacinda Ardern. But of course, what uh, shouldn't go under the radar is a century long history of the Labour Party, um, because that helps contextualising why Jacinda is so popular and where she's standing now. So, um, if I could start kick off start our conversation with the first question, would you care to describe a bit the uh, you know history of the Labour Party in New Zealand and how it is similar or perhaps different to the history of social democratic parties um, in Europe that we know much
1: more? Of? Well, the Labour Party was officially formed in 1916. And it has a background in uh, radical revolutionary workers movements, uh, particularly starting in the coal mining industry in New Zealand. There was a series of general strikes in 1912, 1913. A section of that radical industrial uh, movement, as well as some Christian socialists, joined together and decided that the uh, way to beat the state was to join it. And so they ran for office in Parliament and gradually grew as a party until uh, 1935, when they famously won a landslide victory and uh, formed the first Labour government. So that's 1935, just coming out of the Depression, and the Labour Party was in office right through World War II. Uh, until 1949, and in 1938 in particular, introduced a significant piece of legislation, the Social Security Act, uh, which really reformed our welfare state. So for quite a long time there, New Zealand was definitely going in that uh, social democratic uh, direction.
0: But um, when we look at the history of the years, and you've mentioned 1935 as the moment when Labour enters uh, the government, um, of course, under the different leadership, there were also different directions. I mean, uh, the 1935 is the beginning of the whole strife for the welfare state. But later on, when we look at the Labour parties in the 70s and 80s, I mean, you do have ideological detour there, isn't there?
1: Well, absolutely. So the 1984 election is a key moment in New Zealand history. Uh, A conservative uh, and rather polarising Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, is chucked out in that election to be uh, replaced by the government of David Lange. Uh, Lange loses control of his cabinet, which includes people who are frankly neoliberal in inspiration, alongside uh, various lobbyists and Treasury officials pushed through a radical uh, set of uh, neoliberal reforms in public management and an economic policy. And so for a while there, thanks to uh, the Labour Party, uh, New Zealand became uh, a poster child really, really for neoliberal reform and was frequently cited by OECD and so forth, organisations like that, as the model for uh, neoliberal reform.
0: But then when the two decades uh, passed by, uh, we have return of uh, Labour uh, with a sort of a new inspiration. I'm uh, asking because before also I tapped onto the connection between the Labour Party uh, in New Zealand and more of the global movement and uh, the European traditions. So then uh, 1990s brings us on one side a reform of the electoral law, But it also brings us Helen Clark uh, as a prime minister, the third uh, female prime minister, wasn't it?
1: Second, actually. Second, yes. Uh, So, yes, we reformed our electoral system from the English first-past-the-post system to the German mixed-member proportional system. And that, that kicked off in the 1996 election. Now, Helen Clark had had inherited the leadership of the Labour Party, and truly the Labour Party was almost destroyed by the experience of the 1980s. So Helen Clark uh, took on the leadership. She lost in 1996, but then won in 1999. So she went on to be Prime Minister for nine years, for three terms, because we have a three-year term in, in New Zealand. And she took on very much the Blairite third way model. Uh, And so that meant some retraction from some of the more radical neoliberal stances in the 1980s and 1990s, some, you know, rebalancing or reconnecting with uh, welfare policies, and particularly a family friendly tax credit system. But essentially, yes, I, I guess a Blairite very much inspired by Blair, directly, actually, a Blairite third-way model.
0: And the legacy of those times, of course, is the so many years, a decade in the government. Um, But following that comes uh, quite of a hard time uh, for the uh, Labour Party. A Labour Party um, inherited by Helen Clark manages to rise, uh, if you want, almost from the ashes. Um, And then uh, following her government, uh, another predicament comes, especially connected with the financial crisis and the down uh, plunge in popularity, right?
1: Absolutely. So Labour lost the 2008 election, which was uh, really interestingly timed, just after the worst of the uh, October disaster, the crash in in 2008. And also, of course, about the same time that Barack Obama was elected as president as well. So it was an interesting time. So there was a change of government back to the centre-right national government, led this time by a very popular individual called John Key. Uh, who's rather reminiscent of uh, Mark Rutte in the Netherlands, actually, Uh, close comparison in many respects. Um, So he was successful for uh, another three terms. Uh, He stood down unexpectedly, uh, voluntarily stood down as Prime Minister at the end of 2016 and handed over to his Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Bill English, So when we went into the 2017 election, we had Bill English as the prime minister. And it looked like, I mean, I was completely flummoxed as a a political scientist, as a person trying to predict what was going to happen. In mid-2017, it really looked like National would probably get another term in government Uh, until what happened after that.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But that was a total, you could say, you know, for us being very distant observers, a total surprise. I mean, uh, Jacinda Arden uh, sort of a very sudden uh, move to, uh, for her to accept the bidding for the leadership, uh, the party in a very difficult uh, state. So what happened? How did this miracle come to even exist? Because uh, Labour was at the record low at those points as well.
1: Yeah. Well, it was obvious to anyone that, that Jacinda had talent, <laughs> put it that way. And uh, having met her personally, um, I can say that what you see on TV is what you meet in person. So you could see that she had that that talent, not just the sort of celebrity factor, but also intelligence and a strong emotional intelligence. Just a very smart person, and um, she was clearly on the rise. Now, Labor had really been struggling and looked like it was, you know, struggling in the doldrums that many social democratic or center league parties are suffering from around the world at the moment. But actually. Really, I give a lot of credit to Andrew Little, who uh, is the sort of unsung hero here. So he was the leader of the Labour Party going into the election. We were seven weeks before the election. He knew it wasn't working. He decided to step aside because he could could see that uh, if anyone was going to help Labour win that election, it was Jacinda. So he talked her into taking over the leadership, which she did. And the result was, it was literally electrifying. It completely transformed the election campaign. When people talk about this in the mania from that year in New Zealand, they're not kidding. Uh, the difference was palpable. It was immediate. And uh, Labour shot up in the polls. From, they were heading again around the same sort of level of 25% where they had been in 2014. Uh, for a while, they shot up in opinion polls over 40%. Eventually, in the election, landed at thirty-seven, but that's a big jump for Labor from twenty-five percent to thirty-seven percent, purely based on the change of leadership. No change in policy, just a change of leader.
0: As you have mentioned, uh, the change of leadership. So, of course, quite a lot of politics is uh, today focused on the leadership. Uh, But you see, the leadership is not uh, only the celebrity kind of a leadership. It's uh, quite of an ideological profoundly um, outspoken uh, set of bold messages. Uh, Jacinda, I mean, we've just been talking about very briefly about the century history of the Labour Party. Um, if you look at the, the description of the Labour Party that are floating over the internet, you have the uh, definition somewhere in between centre-left, uh, progressive, uh, um But Jacinda comes back saying, right, what we believe in is democratic socialism. What we are against uh, is the current form of capitalism. What we are in favour is social justice. So there's a lot of ideological uh, reform going on.
1: There is. She made some very bold statements, and I guess one of the most famous ones which resonates in New Zealand is her saying that um, climate change is this generation's nuclear-free moment. And that harked back to 1984 and the introduction of a ban on nuclear weapons and nuclear-powered vessels in this country, which persists to this day, a really important moment in New Zealand's political history back then. So she was quite cleverly um, connecting the older generation of uh, left-wing voters with the younger generation and their genuine fears about the future in relation to climate change. So it was a very bold statement, And yes, she, uh, I guess it's not just that she um, introduced a new kind of ideological direction, but also it was the tone and her talk of, you know, a new kind of politics, politics with kindness, uh, which really came into its own, I have to say, uh, in the uh, COVID-related lockdowns. So, yeah, it was that change of tone, uh, a, a bolder ideological statement. The downside is possibly that, she kind of over promised implicitly and created quite strong expectations from the left that this would be a transformative government. And so, one of the ongoing critiques of, of, of her first term in office has been uh, she said she'd be transformative, and she isn't. Labour isn't really delivering on its promise, and the right, the opposition, have built on that weakness. But nonetheless, of course, they came back stronger in the last election.
0: Right, but uh, this question of the delivery is something that always keeps on hunting down the politicians today, because on one side we demand long-term vision, we demand sense of security that would go beyond current generation. On the other hand, of course, we have uh, even less than 24 hours media cycle, um, which demands uh, quite a lot of bold changes to happen now and right now. Um, but uh, in that context, uh, Jacinda did in her first uh, uh, <laughs> mandate and it was a very complex one because of course today we are forgetting how difficult it was to stitch this uh, coalition government and that it was still in a minority um, when it comes to uh, the house of representatives so um, she indeed happened to have been not only promising but delivering quite substantial reforms when it comes to the people i mean women's agenda uh, one of the uh, you know bold examples um, perhaps i could ask you for some more about where uh, this uh, you know, change and being close to the people um, is what Jacinda delivered in her times uh, as a prime minister in the first cabinet.
1: Well, one thing that for a kickoff that I've got to give her a lot of credit for um, is for personally taking responsibility for child poverty reduction. Child poverty is a real problem in this country. It's persistent. Uh, it's a shame for this country, which traditionally has prided itself on um, being a good place to raise children. But unfortunately for many children in this country, that is simply not the case. Uh, And so what she did was uh, make some statements about making her government accountable for results in child poverty statistics. But furthermore, built that amendment in in, and legislatively into the Public Finance Act, so right into the engine room of the annual financial uh, fiscal cycle, Accountability for child poverty is built into budget annual budget reporting, so that puts it right in the engine room of government, and uh, that's the first time uh, that kind of accountability has been uh, possible in this country. Because normally things like child poverty have been seen as one of those, or something we'd rather not talk about. If you know, under the, particularly under John Key's government, um, or uh, something that's just been brushed under the carpet or something we would like to solve sometime in the future. So I think that was, uh, in in terms of public administration, that was a really bold move, for example. So, but yes, one of the problems that, of course, Jacinda faced in her first term in government that simply to be in government, she relied on to support parties. And particularly in coalition, in cabinet, uh, she had to include the centrist populist Uh, New Zealand First party, and I say, I stress centrist, because New Zealand First is capable of coalescing either with the right or the left, and that keeps open their bargaining power. And after that election, New Zealand First held the balance of power and used their bargaining power to the absolute hilt, and also not just in government formation, but afterwards as well, and for example, blocked a proposal for a Uh, capital gains tax which believe it or not we don't have really well we have now but we didn't really have in New Zealand. New Zealand first presented itself to the public as the handbrake on what they claimed would otherwise be a a far-left government particularly with the influence of the Green Party which was also supporting Labour.
0: And in that context also uh, because uh, now we've discussed uh, the issue of climate uh, we discussed the issue of economy very briefly Um, the uh, sort of very modern pro-individual opportunities uh, but also equal treatment agenda because Jacinda is of course I think uh, you know we have been admiring the headlines about how she stepped up the game when it comes to fighting for gender equality and when it comes to fighting against uh, gender-based violence amongst the others Uh, but Jacinda had also in her first cabinet uh, the times of an absolute uh, crash moment I'm referring here to the tragedy at Christ Church, uh, where, uh, you know, the whole world looked at her as the most empathic and perhaps the most solidaristic, decisive leader uh, who held the country together in this kind of crisis, right?
1: Absolutely. I remember that day very well. And um, it was such a shock to people like, or to any New Zealander, because, I mean, we were, I don't think we were all that naive to think that such a thing could never happen here, but uh, we had traditionally seen ourselves as being distant and isolated from such events. And the two mosques that were attacked, uh, they were attacked in such a viciously well-planned way. It was absolutely vile, evil, frankly. Um, and, but yes, I think Jacinda helped us through that moment really in a really important way. One, of course, primarily because she, as she normally would, she said the first focus must be on the victims. So this embracing of the victims, recognition of their humanity, setting aside any stigmatization or prejudice about their religion. Focus, first of all, on the victims. Um, Another important thing she did was to say that she would never use the name of the killer. And you'll notice I'm going to follow suit. I'm not going to use his name either. Gestures like that uh, were really, really important because it made it so much easier for people like myself who were also grieving for what had happened to the victims, but to our country as a whole, to, you know, we weren't fighting against uh, inappropriate or, or disappointing statements made by the country's leader. In fact, we were feeling proud of what she said. And that made it so much easier for us to grieve, to move forward and to deal with the issue. You know, when she said in an interview that, you know, she made up that speech, that initial speech within about two hours of the actual killings, and uh, of course, we were all wondering, well, what's our prime minister going to say? And she, uh, you know, spoke live on on radio. I remember hearing her. Uh, I think within about two hours of the event itself, and when she says she, you know, made up those words on the fly, so to speak, out of her own intuition, I, I actually fully believe her. She was not surrounded by a bunch of spin doctors and communications advisors. Uh, that, is, that is Jacinda. I say knowing her personally, that is how she is. And so to me, it came across perfectly authentic. Uh, it wasn't, it was not spun in any way whatsoever. That is the kind of leader that she is. And I must say that at that crucial moment, it just made it so much easier uh, for everyone to move forward and to deal with what had really happened. And because it was, it was so awful and so tragic. And uh, it wasn't just the, as I say, the the victims that we had to think about. It was the horrific way in which it was planned. It was just awful.
0: I think that uh, this uh, will continue to bring uh, this uh, feeling of hardship uh, uh, still for the years to move on. And it was an incredible thing for a leader to be able to come forward uh, and to be so understanding and so embracing. In fact, as you have seen, And um, Jacinda, because you've mentioned that as well, Jacinda does have this incredible ability to connect people, because if we look, uh, and now I'm moving uh, to the uh, second election, if you want, Uh, if we look at how uh, the uh, political situation has changed and how many voters the Labour Party have been able to attract, that's incredible, especially for the party that has been in a very difficult government um, and also for a party that for a very long time uh, lost the support and trust of uh, uh, Maori uh, as such and was able to bring them on board. I think that gives an interesting insight on how you can actually still connect and go beyond the discussion we have in Europe about uh, volatility of voters and the drift away from social
1: democratic constituency, right? Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. The 2020 election is unprecedented <laughs> in many respects. Um, so it's the first time under the proportional representation system that a single party has hit 50% and been able to form a single party majority. So Jacinda has taken Labour from 25% in 2014, 37 in 2017, and now 50 in 2020. So that's a remarkable rise, thanks to her leadership, to a large extent, of course, the COVID effect was, was big. So I think generally what we're seeing around the world is that there's a rally round flag effect. I mean, you know, we've heard this a lot. Uh, even, even not particularly successful governments are getting a boost in popularity sometimes. But of course, um, New Zealand's response was successful. To begin with, it wasn't. I have to tell you honestly, we weren't properly prepared. And the virus had basically walked in across our, our border. We didn't, unlike Taiwan, We weren't fast enough to take advantage of our isolation. Taiwan was ready, and they stopped it at the border. We didn't. The virus had basically walked in. So we actually had community transmission. Jacinda made a bold decision on on scientific advice, on good epidemiological advice to go for elimination. And so she basically looked at us on the television and said, stay at home and don't come out unless you really, really have to. (laughs) We had one of the strictest lockdowns on earth, and it worked. Now, it partly worked because we don't have such, my, my opinion anyways, but we don't have such dense populations as you get in large European cities, for instance, like Milan or Paris. But nonetheless, we made it work because people were prepared to make the sacrifice. But boy, it was a sacrifice, you know, however it worked. So at the moment, although our borders are largely shut down, you have to wait for two weeks in quarantine or, or managed isolation before you can get into the country. We have quite a lot of freedom now. So it's, life is pretty much as it was at, you know, normal. You know, there's no, not so much. We've had some outbreaks, et cetera. The main point is that it was the practical success of her strategy, um, plus I think a, what is a fairly standard rally around the effect, rally around the flag effect. Uh, really boosted um, Jacinda's popularity and the Labour Party's popularity. People basically expressed their trust and confidence in this government. And the electoral shift through middle New Zealand across the country, the opposition National Party lost what were otherwise safe seats, electorates. Uh, The shift to the left was profound and it was across the country. It was everywhere. Almost every polling booth had a shift left. And so this was an extraordinary result. We've never seen anything like that under proportional representation.
0: And uh, Jacinda returns to the government uh, with uh, the majority this time, something, uh, you know, many parties on the centre-left can only dream about. Of course, the situation of COVID is uh, extremely difficult, uh, but she also tackles uh, the situation of COVID, uh, you know, at least for a foreign eye, uh, with incredible sensitivity because she taps onto the people's fears. I mean, I personally watched uh, a number of Facebook transmissions where she's asking the scientists the same question all of us would like to ask. But she also gets ahead saying, listen, this is going to be hard economically, it's going to be hard because global economy is going to face uh, difficulties following the lockdowns and everything else that is taking place. Um, and she comes up with this. Right. We in the government are also going to cut back on our salaries. I mean, um, that's part of the uh, renovation plan, but there is more, right? Uh, there is already the whole uh, recovery plan uh, that uh, New Zealand is working along the lines. And even more, I've seen uh, on the news uh, that uh, just recently additional welfare um, security payments have been installed when it comes to women suffering from miscarriages and other Difficulties. So Jacinda is not giving up of a long-term tradition of uh, modernising welfare state, but also picks up on the new wave of uh, what needs to be done. Uh, could you tell us a couple of words more what's
1: happening? Well, uh, yes, all of those things are good. However, it's not, it's not plain sailing by any means because you've got to remember we've got 30 years of, of increased inequality, particularly around housing and therefore income and asset wealth inequality and housing security housing affordability, housing availability problems that have built up over time. And unfortunately the pandemic has made some of those inequalities worse because the uh, Reserve Bank dropping the interest rates has made credit cheap. Investors have gone in uh, and created a bit of an asset bubble in the housing market, making it only worse for for people who aspire to own their own home and, and for renters for that matter. So these are problems that are very, very hard for a government to control. And I, they just the other day, they have made some efforts to, to dampen down uh, investor enthusiasm in the housing market in favour of first-home buyers. But this, of course, creates controversy uh, you know, left, right and centre. Even left-wing, a lot of left-wing people in New Zealand are unhappy with this government. They feel that they're not doing enough. They're not being uh, radical enough, particularly around um, benefit adequacy uh, and certainly around they'd like the government naturally to be bolder around climate change we have huge vested interests blocking reduction in carbon emissions in New Zealand because about half of our carbon emissions come from uh, livestock from agriculture which as you can understand is a big interest for you know big business interest but also it's a big part of our export industry uh, as well so those are the sort of vested interests that she has to deal with Um, so yes um, she has uh, really, I think, transformed the face of government. But look out—you know, there's a lot of internal difficulties and headwinds. COVID has only exacerbated uh, inequalities, not only in New Zealand, I'm sure, but elsewhere. And I think she's going to have a hard time addressing those inequalities, let alone making up for the legacy of 30 years of neoliberalism.
0: That sounds like uh, we are going towards the end of the conversation with an extremely cautious note. Uh, you know, we are all. Uh... So uh, into just in the Mania that you've mentioned already before, um, but uh, then to round up uh, with all this hardship with uh, the points that you've made about the difficulties that COVID exacerbated because, uh, you know, inequalities, uh, problems with housing, children's poverty, uh, this all have been the piling up problems also here in Europe. Um, that through the COVID only have become worse and, if anything, more pressing. Um, But we've just had uh, this, you know, landslide. We're just looking up at the success story with all these different elements. What do you think can be expected in the years to come, knowing that Jacinda can be, on one side, reassuring when it comes to ideological cause, on the other side quite surprising when it comes to boldness and the steps uh, moving forward so what do you think we will hear from New Zealand when it comes to progressive politics in let's say one two years to come
1: well I hope good news (laughs) but um, it's very much I'd say watch the space now so Labour has a golden opportunity they have a single party majority however also they do have a cooperation agreement with the Greens which they didn't constitutionally need to have in order to form the government. Um, but I think that was a smart move uh, because it builds up a relationship with the Greens, which they might very well need after the next election, because one has to say it's unlikely that that, that Labour will sustain the kind of uh, uh, lead that it had in 2020. Uh, so the next two years are really crucial. And so the thing to look out for is whether Labour will use this opportunity to really push forward some progressive measures. Now, there's some signs of it. Uh, I, I wouldn't at this point in time in, in March 2021 say that that's going to happen. I very much, very much have a sort of wait and see philosophy. Uh, however, uh, I think that the looking at the whole trajectory that Jacinda has been on, The lesson for social democratic parties is simply get a good leader. Wow, what a difference it's made. And not just a good leader in the terms of having that celebrity factor. She is also incredibly talented and smart. The way that she, the ability she has to to be very clear, very confident in her messaging, setting aside all sorts of nonsense that you can imagine comes her way, be it sexist nonsense. Or accusations that she's a communist or something like this, she just sets that aside. She doesn't let it deter her. She doesn't let it get under her skin, and she sticks to her message. And she, but when I say she sticks to her message, not in a mechanical way, she does intelligently answer uh, questions from reporters. For example, and if you look at some of her her um, uh, open mic situations with with uh, international. Uh, correspondence as well as domestic correspondence, she really does answer uh, reporters' questions uh, courteously and directly which under pressure (laughs) you've got to say is quite a talent Um, so yeah, so she has a a very good ability to respond to those questions and anyone can watch her Facebook Live uh, for instance uh, broadcasts, and you really get that sense as her ability, her natural ability to connect with people in social media. You you can follow her on Instagram or on, on Facebook and you'll, you'll get a very real sense of how she is able to connect. And as I say, she's not putting it on that this is the natural person that you meet in person if you have the pleasure of meeting her one day.
0: Well, thank you so much. Well, I actually uh, personally do remember Jacinda uh, because we served in the youth organisation together. So I do remember her from the times of her presidency in the International Union of Socialist Youth where she has been just as you've described her um, but, uh, I think, uh, Looking at her today, she is definitely a great inspiration. Uh, She's definitely a symbol of not giving up and keeping up to the best tradition of social democracy. And by keeping to the best tradition, I think putting forward exactly what the slogan of the Labour Party is. Let's keep moving and let's keep bringing uh, the better life, uh, uh, better working conditions and better equal opportunities for each and everyone. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Grant Duncan, uh, Associate Professor in Politics at Massey University, Albany Campus, Oakland, has been your and my guest at uh, the Feb Stocks, connecting with 12 hours of difference, but so many things in common. Thank you so much for being uh, our guest and for providing so much inspiration to our listener.
1: It's been a great pleasure, thank you.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, Do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Febstalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.